37. Genesis chapter 37 is where we find ourselves as we study verse by verse through this foundational book. We come to this section, uh, really the last uh, important section of this book, the, between uh, verses or chapter 37 all the way through the end of the book, chapter 50. This is the last division of this book, and we're going to look at the man, Jacob. It's family, where it's Joseph who we focus on. You'll see my little PowerPoint there, the life of Joseph. He's going to be the one we look at. Joseph is, is uh, the son of Jacob. And uh, tonight we kind of get uh, Jacob and, and his family and the outcome of his family and, and his, his real passive parenting. We'll, we'll see the result of that. But it's Jacob's family that we look at because Jacob's family becomes the nation of Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was changed from surplanter, from con man to uh, God rules. And so that's why we're looking at this family. This family becomes important because when you go into the book of Exodus, it's all about the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. So we go from just this little localized family, Jacob and his 12 sons and his daughter, Dinah, to this nation. That's, that's where we're being led. And then as we move into Exodus, um, because of their disobedience, they get taken into captivity for 400 years and all about that in Exodus. So uh, this, again, is this foundational section that we're in here. Um, remember, it was back in chapter 15 of Genesis where God told Abraham that his family, let me throw this scripture up for you real quick, Genesis 15, 14, that his family, his descendants are going to roam around as strangers. Genesis 15, look at the verse behind me. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and I will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. So it's this family that's going to be taken captive into Egypt for this 400 years. And so God has already told them that, but now we're seeing how it all fits together. Now, there are five important things that I want to just mention because we're in this this last division of the book here, in Joseph's life. It's Joseph's life that we're studying now between here and the end of the book. And there are five things about his life and the development of the Hebrew nation here um, that, that we, we're going to see. Number one is the development of the nation, not just this localized family. It was back in Genesis chapter 12 that God told Abraham, here's another verse for you, Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. That was God's promise to Abraham, and I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. So this is the fruit of that. We're seeing it come to fruition before we move into the new book. Um, Exodus. I'm not sure if that's where we'll go on Wednesday night, but we'll see how God leads us. But that's the first thing, the development of the nation from just the family to, to, to this large nation of people, the children of Israel. Number two, we see the sovereignty of God or God working providentially. That means that God is working always in the background to accomplish his will. Don't ever forget that. Men have free will. Men make sinful choices. We've seen that in this family, right? But God is working all things for his good and his pleasure and what he wants to accomplish, even though sinful man chooses wrong. God is working providentially, and we see that, again, we'll see that big time in this man, Joseph. Thirdly, Joseph's integrity. His life of integrity 
trusting the Lord. It begins, as we'll see tonight, he's 17 years old. When all this happens, he gets thrown in the pit and he's sold into slavery. So he's a young man, but he continues in his lifetime his commitment to the Lord. That's why he becomes a great, great model for all of us to look to his life of integrity. And then his faith, his life of faith, he loves the Lord, he trusts the Lord through hardship. And we're going to look at, at that. This story goes from one hardship to another. He's lied about, he's sold into slavery, his father thinks that he's dead because of the bloody coat that his brothers bring home to show his dad. Then he's uh, grabbed by Potiphar's wife and, and she lies about him saying that he raped her and then he's thrown into prison, he meets the butler and the baker and, and if he didn't meet them then he wouldn't be able to prophesy to Pharaoh about his dream. You, know, you understand the story but it's through a bunch of bad situations that God brings about his purpose. And so it's important for us to see those things as we march our way through. We'll be in here uh, throughout the summer, I would imagine, until we get to the end of chapter 50. And then finally, Joseph, and we're going to see many pictures of his faithfulness, and he, he becomes a type in the Bible. He's a type of Christ. We'll see that as we look at him. His life illustrates Christ. Christ in the way he lived, and, and very demonstrably, we'll see that again. I'll point that out as we go through and look at his life. But again, the important details here, from Genesis chapter 15 all the way to chapter 24, we began with God's covenant given to Abraham. And remember, it's an everlasting covenant. Don't let anybody tell you that, that God is done with Israel and now the church or God is done with Israel and now this certain people, the Mormons, or God is done with Israel and now we have this new, no. This is, when God makes an everlasting covenant, don't ever make it less than that. When you read in the Bible and it says everlasting, believe what it says and live it and read the Bible with that in mind. And I have been emphasizing, emphasizing, emphasizing that. You, you'll probably get tired of that, but I think it'll help you in the future as you read the scriptures. That God's made an everlasting covenant and that everlasting covenant has been passed down. It's being passed forward from one generation to another. But as this covenant is being passed down, here's another important point for you to remember. Each time the covenant has been given and being passed down, we see God's election, providence, choosing. You could use all those terms, but God is working over and over. He is choosing. He is working to bring about his plan. The, the story clearly illustrates that. You say, well, how? How does that work? Because God's covenant goes... Very interestingly, it goes from Abraham to Isaac, not to Ishmael. Remember the, the whole problem with Ishmael? In the flesh, Sarah and Abraham said, we'll help you out, God. God doesn't need to be helped out. We need to trust the Lord. We need to obey the Lord. It's absolute obedience what he wants. So, so God, while man tries to do his way and manipulate, God says, nope, I don't accept it. Here's my way. And again, God is divinely working. He's working to bring about his plan. He chooses. This is his goal. So we get the covenant that goes from Abraham, and it goes from Abraham to Isaac, not to Ishmael. Then it goes from Isaac to Jacob, not to Esau, but to Jacob. It goes from Jacob to Joseph, not to Reuben. That's what we've just seen. It goes to Joseph. And it's very interesting here. Uh, Judah is going to go to Judah, not to Reuben, I should say. 
Now, over and over, God is working this everlasting covenant through this family. That's what we're seeing passed down one uh, to one person to the next. And finally, we get here to chapter 37. And we see God providentially working all things for his purpose and his promised blessing to his people to give them descendants, to make them a nation, to give them a land, and eventually to bring the spiritual blessing that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed, the seed of the woman, the Messiah. So it's important to see these events and understand these as you read your Bible. So we're going to pray, and then we'll jump right into chapter 37. Father, thank you for the word. And uh, tonight, we just ask, God, that you would speak through your word, that we as your children would understand the truth of your word. Again, Lord, we're living in a world filled with lies, and we so want to hear from you. And we thank you, Lord, for, for uh, keeping this record, that your divine record, and that it's been distributed generation after generation for many thousands of years corroborated that it's, it's factual, that it, it says the same thing over the centuries. And Lord, tonight we read it and really we gain a lot of instruction. So teach us as we open our ears now to hear your word in Jesus we pray. Amen. Now this chapter, real quick, three characters. You have Jacob, the foolish husband, the, the kind of the, the father of his family that's, that's been so passive and we'll see that again tonight. And then we have Joseph. He's young. He's naive. You'll notice his naivete as we look at him. And then you have Joseph's brothers, murderers. Last chapter, remember, they're murderers. And uh, they, their hearts are hard. They oppose their father. They oppose their little brother. We'll see that tonight. So Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers. We begin this evening, verse 1, with my first point, family problems, obviously. Family problems. Now Jacob, verse 1, dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger. That goes back to the Genesis verse I, I quoted earlier. In the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. So remember, Jacob's a, a shepherd, really, and his offspring, his family, is all, they're all shepherds. And the lad was with the sons of Bila and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. You remember all the, the children and where they came from. We studied that. And Joseph, he brought a bad report of them, all of these brothers of his, to his father. Now, here, here's the name, Jacob, remember Israel, his name was changed. So Israel loved jo Joseph more than all his children. I love the way we're going to see Jacob's name come up because he, become, he goes back to Jacob. He always goes back there. Uh, Jacob's not good. But, but he did love his son, so they mention his name. Moses is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, and Jacob, or pardon me, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic, a coat of many colors. Now, needless to say, this family's messed up. We've talked about that. Jacob here, he has 12 sons, and they come from all these different women. They have four different mothers. You have all these kids from four mothers. And then there was, remember the rivalry between Leah and, and uh, 
uh, Rachel there. There was this trying to have children, trying to have children, and then they traded off their handmaidens, you know, to Jacob. So this family is really messed up, and, and there's a lot of problems here. Then you have Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph and, and Benjamin are the only children of Rachel. Rachel was, was Jacob's choice. Jacob saw her, fell in love with her, wanted to marry her, worked seven years to get her, and then, remember, everything changed. Leah. Never loved Leah. Poor Leah. But these two children, Joseph and Benjamin, were the only two of his favorite wife, uh, Rachel. And then eight of Joseph's siblings were the son of Jacob's un loved wife, Leah, and her handmaid, Zilpah, and two from Billa. So Jacob's older brothers, they also knew that Jacob loved Joseph more. Why? Because Jacob gave him a coat. Jacob's an old man. I don't know. He's, maybe he's softened over the years, and he finally understands the, the importance of his sons, and he really loves Joseph. Joseph is his favorite. In fact, he'd rather talk to Joseph than any of his other sons. Reuben, I could care less. In fact, you're a murderer, whatever. I'm going to talk to, and I'm going to spend time, and I'm going to give this special gift to my favorite son, Joseph. So Jacob gives Joseph this rich ornamental coat here. And that's the reason that the brothers hate him, because dad Loved him best, you know, and gave him a gift here. Secondly, my next point here, the coat of many colors. We've all heard about it. But the importance of that coat in verse 3. Wearing that coat would have made him special among his brothers. It was special because it was a coat given by his father. But more importantly, it was like the manager's coat. It was like the coat that um, was given to him because he was special. My second point there, the coat of many colors. It's in verse 3. I mean, you wouldn't work with this special coat, this very special coat that you'd have. You, you wouldn't work with that thing on. It's too colorful. It's too beautiful. The way the Hebrew is written here, it, it says a tunic of many colors. It means that it was different than the regular tunic, Many colors had the idea that it was long and that it, it went down to his wrists rather than just to his shoulders like most tunics were. Most working tunics stopped here so you could have mobility. They stopped, you know, uh, just below, above your knee so you could keep working. But this one was full-length coat. It went to his sleeves. It was very nice and, and fancy. The coat of many colors. It's and, and just a, a beautiful coat. So when he comes up to see his brothers, they notice something different about what they're wearing and what he's wearing. He's got this manager's coat on. And, and really, they see it as it should be seen. It's so special a garment that they believe that their father has now usurped them and given him, their young punk little brother, his birth, their birthright. That God has jumped over all the older brothers and given it because he loves him more. He's going to give him everything. Look, he's made him the manager of our home. Can you see how messed up the family is here? And then the, the boys, they're going to rebel, obviously, about all this stuff. But verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, notice what it says, they hated him. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Whenever he came around, it was Joseph. 
get out of here, you punk, you know. And I mean, they were really rude to him. They were mean to him. They hated him. That's what it says here. And again, this is why, this explains verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. Because Joseph came back to his dad and he gave a bad report. Dad, gee, all your sons, my brothers, they're really upset. I mean, they're cussing, they're doing this, they're lying. Wow. I mean, that's the report that he brings back to his father. Well, it makes sense. They hated, they hated him. He had the coat on. Dad loves him in a way that he doesn't love me. They're offended by that, and so they, they hate him. Now, here's the application, favoritism. For you as a parent, maybe you're young, looking forward to have a children. Maybe you have children that are young. But favoritism is always bad, even if you're an, you have an older son or daughter. Favoritism is always wrong, and it messes up, it messes with kids. And the reason it does that is, is because every child longs to be loved by their parent. Every one of us wants our parent to say, oh, I'm so proud of you. I mean, I, I desired that so much. My parents, and I love my mom. My mom's still alive, and I love them dearly. But she had a hard time. She had twins and that overwhelmed her, and then she had me. And I was just a terror running around with a stick, chasing my sisters, pulling their hair, you know, trying to get them to scream in the car so they get in trouble, you know, all that stuff that boys do to their sisters. And then I had a little sister, and, and they were in the house. They got to wash clothes together and talk together. And I was sent outside to, to scrape uh, plums and apricots off the ground. It made me gag. I hated that. I still hate those fruits to this day. <laughs> Not my mom. I love my mom. But, you know, as a child, you want your parents to say, I love you. But sometimes they oh, go to work and do well in school and do this. But how many times have your parents come and said, I am proud of you? I think we'd all be shocked at how many people tonight would have the, the story that they, they don't believe that their parents really love them. I bet we'd be shocked right now. If I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'll bet you that's the case. What do we learn from that? Christians, we need to encourage one another in the body and the family of Christ. We need to encourage the young ones. That's why if sometimes there's a baby inside the sanctuary and they make a little peep, don't you dare look at them like they're bug bugging you because I'm going to be on your case. These are important. These, our kids are important. We need to encourage these parents. These parents need to hear God's word. So if, if there's a little squeak or squawk, you know, you make sure your phone's off. I can't believe it. You know, your phone will go off and it's, oh, whatever. You know, and the baby cries and it's like, what? <laughs> Don't do that. I, it really doesn't happen that much. I'm just kind of, but, but it's really important to anyone here that feels that way, that they weren't loved by their parents. I, I, here's some good news. God loves you. God is your father in heaven. And he supersedes your earthly father. And maybe you're an earthly father that didn't have a clue. I mean, where do you get trained to be a parent anyway? And unless you had a good role model as a parent, you might be a, you, you just out of ignorance. You don't even know what to do. So you might have made a lot of change or, or made a lot of bad decisions with your kids. But you know what? Now that you know it, you can change can change it all. You can go back to them and say, I'm sorry. For the 30 years, I, I, I never said I love you like I do. I really do love you. Oh, you mean more than to me now? Just like I believe this man, Jacob, in his old age, finally saw how he was supposed to love his son, and he did. He loved him. He was learning. So, you, you know, there's always time to go back and say, I'm sorry. 
uh, grandparents, parents. We need to go back and tell our kids that we really, really do love them. I love what the writer of the, uh, what Paul says in Ephesians here. He says this in Ephesians 2.10, and I'll just throw the scripture up behind you. This is, this is what God sees of you as his son or daughter. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're his workmanship. Did you know that? That when you believe in Christ, many things happen. I've told you before, many things happen to you. You're regenerate. You're taken out of Adam. You're put into Christ. You're, you have uh, imputed righteousness. You have a new nature. All those things happen to you, but I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2, for we are his poema in the Greek, his workmanship. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you come to Christ and everything changes. Now, you can be the father that you've always wanted, the mother that you've always the grandparents that you've always wanted to be. You can be that because you're now his workmanship there. That's your legacy as one of God's children. And so maybe you had a rough upbringing. Maybe you were, were a child of a step relationship, but your Father in heaven loves you. And this is your new legacy. You're his workmanship. God made you for his purpose. He has a plan for your life. He's, he's the one in heaven right now, God. He's cheering you on because he knows your potential. And so keep your eyes on the Lord. Now, I believe that as we read this, this story here, that the sons of Leah... And Billa and Zilpah, they spent their lives looking for approval from their dad that never came. Jacob, you know, if, if it ever came, it was rare. It's very sad when you really study this man's life. So Joseph, he leaves his hateful brothers here. He returns to his father with this bad report because they got a bad attitude, these guys. And that's when God begins to reveal his future in a dream. And this is important here. We see the dream in verse 5. My next point here, Joseph's dream. Look at verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. And they hated him even more. So he said to them, please, uh, listen, see how he's so naive. It's, they hate him. Oh, get out of here. We don't want to. Well, I just want you to listen to hear what my dream. And he said, please hear this dream, which I've dreamt. There we were, all together, all his brothers were binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, my sheaf, it arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to them, shall you indeed reign over? They got it. Bam, that fast. They, they understood. I don't think Joseph really gets it. He's so naive. He's like, well, this is what I saw, these sheep. And I was just standing there and all these other sheep. What, what does that mean? He's asking his brother. And they knew exactly. They knew exactly what the dream was. Shall you indeed reign over us? Question. And then notice, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? We're older than you. What are you saying, you little pipsqueak? You know, whatever. They, they hated him even the more for the dreams and for his words. Now, the reason this story begins with a dream, and I think this is really, really important for us to understand, Joseph and his life. This is, we're getting a little bit of prophecy. We're getting a little bit of glimpse into the future of his life. God is showing him, and I believe he's going to look back on this. And through all his hardships, year after year after year, in prison and all the things, 
This is what's going to encourage him, this dream that God gave him, because God is speaking specifically to him in this, in this dream. And God is involved in his life, and he, 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 was, he was motivating him through this dream. So here's, here's the main point here. Now, as we read the story, we see Jacob, we see the sons, we have Joseph, but here's God. God shows up. God is the hero of the story. God is the motivator. God is providentially working in his, this family, this messed up upside down family. God has a purpose for this man. And he's revealing it not only to him, but to the whole family. And they'll get it. It's just going to take them years and years in the future. They're finally going to get it. That's one of the beautiful things about this story. Now, Joseph, he doesn't go to his brothers and begin to brag. There's no, no boasting here as you read this. He's just troubled by the dream. And he says, brothers, I, I just want you to hear my dream, verse 6, the, the dream that I've, I've dreamt. And again, he's 17. He's very young. Maybe he hasn't gotten a lot of instruction, spiritual instruction from his dad, but he's gotten a little bit. He's, he's a godly man. We're going to see his integrity and his love for the Lord as we move through this, these chapters. But his brothers, they immediately understand the dream, and they're threatened by it. That Joseph has this dream in his is actually saying to them that one day we're going to serve you. You're going to have dominion over us. I mean, this, they were incensed over all of that thing. But here's the, here's the important point. Listen to this. Joseph's ultimate position over his brother is going to have to do with food. It's, it's all about the food. They're going to bow down to get food. That's why the sheaf, that's the importance of the sheaf. So you might forget that, but I'll bring it up in the future again. But then Joseph says, says wait, that wasn't all. There's more. There's, I had another dream. Look at verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, and, and he told that to his brothers. You'd think he'd learn, you know, from his brothers. I don't want to hear you. Get out of here. We don't, you know, and he doesn't. He's, again, naive, in my opinion. He says, look what I have dreamed, another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars, specifically 11, they all bound to the universe, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. They all bowed down to me. So he told it to them. Now, what, they were probably like, whatever. And then he went and told his father, verse 10, and his, and his, his brothers, his father, actually rebuked Jacob, rebuked him. What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down on the earth before you? What are you talking about? Now, again, when Jacob heard about this dream from his son, I, I, I'm thinking he's like, no, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. I love you. Oh, son, wait. I, I really love you, but... Uh, like, I'm the sun and your mom's the moon. Is that what you're saying? Is that, you know, you better knock it off. I, I mean, that's really what he's saying. But notice what Jacob does in verse 11. And his brothers envied him. But notice Jacob, his father kept the matter in mind. His father was like, hmm, I remember when God spoke to me. Hmm. I wonder what's going on here. Hmm. So the, the, his brothers immediately reject it. It's to them, it doesn't make any sense, but to Jacob, he, he rebukes his son, but he goes, oh, gee, I wonder what's going on here. Again, a couple of things come to mind. Jacob becomes this passive father. 
He doesn't really sit down and talk to his son about it. He just says, you know, your mother and I, what, you're really? I don't think that's right. He thinks about it, but he doesn't do anything about it either. He doesn't do anything about his sons, other sons that are given Joseph such a hard time. He doesn't do anything. Here's the application or, or, or just another a thought that I want to give. It's not really application, but a thought about dreams. Think about these people in this time. They don't have a Bible. There's no Bible. There's nothing written. They have stories that are passed down, passed down. But they don't have the Bible yet. Moses is going to write this later. All this stuff's going to be written down later. So they have, the God would, remember, he came to these patriarchs and he spoke to them. We see Christophanes from the beginning. We've seen Jesus show up and speak. But here, God comes to him in a dream. So Joseph's time, they didn't have a Bible like we do. And and God, I believe now, we don't need dreams. You might have dreams. I have dreams. I have dreams that I can actually control. My wife thinks that's funny. But I'm in a dream, and it's like, oh, okay, okay, well, I'll just do this. I mean, I I do that in my, my dreams. But, but dreams, for these people, God was speaking. I don't believe God needs to give you a dream. And if someone comes to you, and there are those Christians out there, oh, I've, I've seen a vision for you. And you just go, I have a Bible. Get out of here with your dream. You have been given the word of God. You don't need a dream. And you'll see this in some churches, especially the health wealth churches. Somebody will come up and, oh, I had this vision. I had this dream. And everybody goes, oh, he's a real spiritual man. Oh, it's just a bunch of hooey, in my opinion. You have the Bible. They didn't have it. You have the Bible. The Bereans, remember in the book of Acts, the Bereans were more noble Because they had, and they checked the scriptures to see if everything that Paul said was true. You have the Bible. You don't need someone coming to you and say, I have a vision. I have something. God told me something about you. To me, it's like, whatever. I I just don't see it anymore. Don't trust any Christian or or someone that has, has visions about you. Instead, read the Bible, study the Bible, know your Bible so you won't be led down some weird path. Now, verse 12 Verse 12 here, my next point, Joseph checks on his brothers. So notice this in verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock. Notice where they go. Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I'm going to send you to them. So he said to him, here I am, Dad. Where, where do you want me to go? Oh, Shechem? Okay, I'll go to Shechem. Then he said, please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he becomes kind of like a spy. Not really, but he's checking up. He's at home for some reason. Favorite son. The rest of the guys are out there doing the work. They're out there with the, with the sheep and, and, the, and, and shepherding. But they're in Shechem. I think Jacob's going... Shechem, they're in Shechem. They had some problems in Shechem. They murdered those people in Shechem. And the people around Shechem, I think they're going to retaliate. I wonder how my sons are. That's what I think is going on here. And so he sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Verse 15, now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? So he said, I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph says. Please tell me where they're feeding their flock. Uh, uh, you know, I've got brothers. There's 
You know, these 11 brothers are wandering. They're going to these flocks that came from our home. Have you seen them? And the man said, verse 17, they've already departed from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Again, Dinah was raped in Shechem. The sons retaliated, Simon, Simeon and Levi, they, they retaliated against the son of Shechem and killed him and all the other men after they had him circumcised, you know, made their little plot. And, and I think that's why he sent his son, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on the brothers. But you have to wonder if Jacob even thought about his son's hatred for Joseph. You have to wonder if it, it, didn't he see it already? You know, when, when the dream came up, when they were talking about it, that he probably saw his, the, the animus and the, the hatred that his other 11 sons had for Joseph. So why, what is he doing? Why is he sending him off like that? Again, he's a passive father. He, he's not really engaged. He, he just does it. He's not thinking about it. He's not training his son. That's, that's what I see when I, I read this. And he, he's just that kind of a parent. Now, the brothers plot to kill Joseph. My next point here in verse 18. This is a long narrative. That's why I'm kind of breaking it down. But look at verse 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against to kill him. So the brothers see him coming. They're in Dothan. Who's that coming way down the road? Oh, the coat. He's wearing the coat. You can see it a mile away. You know, they see the coat coming, and, man, I am sick and tired of him. I got away from him at Father's home, and now he's away from Dad. Let's kill him. I mean, this is how mad they are. This is how angry and upset they are. They want to kill him. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, the dreamer is coming. (laughs) Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into a pit. Let's just bury him. And, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. And we'll see what will become of his dreams, the dreamer. Now, again, I see as I read this, the brothers, you see them coming, their teeth are clenching. They're like, oh, here he comes. Look at Cody, the dreamer. And they're mad. I mean, I see that even as I read this, they, they can't wait to kill him, get their hands on him. They've thought a lot about their little punk brother. They thought a lot about him, and they're tr- they've been devising this plan here. He's got his special coat. He's dad's favorite. They had murder on their minds, and they decide to defeat the dreams, these two dreams about him being superior over them. They're going to defeat his dreams by attacking him, by killing him. Verse 21, but Reuben, remember Reuben, the oldest? He heard about their plot, and he delivered he steps in there. So as, as Joseph's coming closer to his brothers, naive Joseph, doo, 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 17 years old, doo, doo, doo. I'm just going to with my coat. I got my coat, you know, my flashy coat. He's walking up to his brothers, and they're like, oh, you go over there, you go over there. We're going to get this guy. You know, they're going to attack him. They're going to pounce on him. And it's Reuben that steps in and delivers him here out of their hands. And he says, what are you guys thinking? You can't kill your brother. Reuben said, shed no blood, but cast him into a pit. Just throw him in the hole right here in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So this is Reuben's plan. I'm gonna, let's just throw him in a pit, guys. Stop, stop. He's the oldest brother. 
We'll just throw him in the pit, and then he's going to, the next step will come to him. He'll try to figure out how to, how's he going to save his little brother here? And so he delivers Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, the same Reuben who slept with his father's concubine. Maybe he learned something out of his disobedience. He steps in and he takes leadership, not Jacob, it's his oldest son Reuben, the murderer. And he says, shed no blood, but cast him into the pit, which is in the wilderness. So, verse 23, my next point, these kind of come quickly again. Joseph is stripped of his coat and sold here. You know the story. So it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his coat, his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. So the first thing these jealous brothers do They can't wait to get that coat off of him. Every time they see that coat, oh, it makes them mad. So they they just rip the coat off of him because they hate it because it shows his father's favoritism. And then verse 24, they, they took him and cast him into the pit. And notice the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Normally when you dug a well, it was deep, you know, real deep. They had to lower. So that's really what is the water well, but it's dry. So it's a, we're talking a deep shaft. He can't climb out of it. He's way down. He's, I, they threw him in there. So how far did he fall? Is he hurt? He's now at the bottom of this, this well, this pit that has no water. And then verse 25, and they sat down and they ate lunch. It just shows you how hardened these guys are, that they really don't care about him. They're heartless. And they ate while Joseph is now suffering at the bottom of the well. And that's when they come up with a new plan. Their new plan is to, to make some money off him. Verse 25, then they lifted up their eyes and looked, and they saw a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. So we have this caravan, camels, camels loaded with stuff. And the Ishmaelites are now, they're moving as a, car- a camel caravan moving through the desert. And they looked up and they saw it. They were at Dothan. Dothan was like the crossroads of this trade route. And so they're there and, and this, this company of Ishmaelites come with their camels bearing spices, balm, myrrh, and on their way to carry him to Egypt. Verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, remember Judah here, Judah said to his brother, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. So Reuben's not there at this point in time. You know, they do all this stuff and Reuben's not there, but it's Judah who now steps forward and says, listen, let's just sell him, make some money off him. The Midianite traders, verse 28, passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up They lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And so they took took Joseph all the way to Egypt. Verse 29. Now notice how they cover their sin with a lie here. Then Reuben, he comes back to the pit. Remember, his idea was throw him in the pit. We'll let my brothers cool off. I'll come back and get him. We'll take him home and everything will be fine. Verse 29. Reuben returned to the pit. And he wasn't in there. He looks in the pit and where'd he go? What'd you guys do to him? I mean, that's, that's the story here. And notice what he does. He tore his clothes. Why would he tear his clothes? Because he thought his brothers killed him. So he looks in the pit and it's like, oh, they killed him. And he rips his clothes. He just tore his clothes. He, he, he felt helpless. It's, he felt horror that his brothers might have done that. 
And Reuben knows how much his father loves Joseph. He, his father's really old. He's getting old, and he loves this boy. If, if something happens to this, Reuben knows. See, Reuben's changing. And he knows that his father's going to be brokenhearted if, if they don't come back with, with his favorite son there. So they begin to cover this whole thing up with this lie. Verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and he said, the lad is no more and I, uh, where shall I go? What should we do? So they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of goats. They dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it back to their father and said, we're all here, dad, but look, and they dropped the bloody tunic right before Jacob there. They set it before him. We found this. Do, do you know whether it's your son's or not? Like, hmm. And he recognized it, Jacob does, and it's my son's tunic. A, a wild beast has devoured. See, he came up, he knew in his mind, he, he went through the whole thing. He, bloody tunic, he, a wild beast must have killed him. He didn't believe his sons did it. Interesting view he had of his sons. Without a, do, uh, without a doubt, pardon me, Joseph is torn to pieces. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his waist and he mourned for his son many days. So when Jacob sees the bloody coat, he believes that his son, his favored son is now dead here. And, and he tears his clothes and he goes into this mourning, which is a very common thing for these people. And none of the sons step forward and tell the truth. Reuben doesn't do it. Judah doesn't do it. None of the sons come up and say, okay, pops, you know, we're, we lied. He's still alive. We just sold him to some traitors. And nobody tells the truth here. But his sons... This is what's interesting, and, and as you remember, you've got to remember Jacob. Remember Jacob in his early days. Remember Jacob in his, his life. It's really interesting. There's a sad irony as you look at this story. Jacob deceived his father Isaac by offering him this, you know, his hand was covered with a goat that had been slain. There's an there's a interesting irony going on here. Just Another example of God working in this individual life to show him. God works in subtle ways. Wouldn't you agree? He does it in your life. He's done it in mine. And if I'm listening to him, if I'm reading the word, if I'm in prayer, I get it. I get it right away. If I'm not, it might take days, weeks, months, years. But God is working sovereignly here. And Jacob truly believed his son was dead. And he begins to hurt big time. He is, he is broken to the core. Verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters, they came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, I will go down to, into the grave to my son in mourning. I, he didn't want to listen to any of his kids. He was really torn up by this death. And, and I haven't had the loss of a child. And some have, and it's a very, very... A hurtful thing. But that's what he's experiencing right now. Thus his father wept for him. So we get Jacob here at the end. And then the final verse, the Midianites, 
They took him all the way to Egypt. They sold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard. So we'll get back to him. We'll get back to Joseph next week. But right now, the end of the story really is about Jacob. This is the lowest place in his life. He is a broken man. His daughter's been raped. His sons had retaliated by murdering a bunch of men in, in Shechem. His beloved Rachel died. His father, Isaac, is dead. And now he believes his youngest boy, the one he loved, is, he thinks he's dead. I mean, he's, he's at the bottom. So what do we learn from his troubles? It's, the, the story is about the coat, but there's other ramifications here in this text here in this chapter. The things that we learn from his troubles. Jacob, number one, is a man like you and I, struggling. He struggles with stuff. He struggles with sin. He struggles with, with the, all things human. But the one thing that I see in here is he becomes such a negative example of a father. It, really a negative example of a, of a father. And Rachel is a negative example of a mother and then you have, you know, her father Laban. They're all twisted. This family is really messed up. And all of these things come as a result of that. In Joseph's early life, we see a passive father who loved him more than his brothers. We see jealousy and anger. And I mean, they wanted to kill their brother. They, were, they had jealousy and all of those things. And again, we learn about children, children left alone to figure out their own life. And that's what these boys were left, a passive dad. He becomes that example, a bad example of a passive father. So what could he have done? Pray. If you find yourself in this place, there's no more power that you could get in your life for your children and have greater influence in their life through prayer. You begin to pray. God will show you what you've done wrong. You mourn before the Lord. You, you're broken before God as you pray. And then you go and you make things right. He could have done that. He could have prayed. Joseph, we're going to look, has come from this negative example, this negative father figure, and he's going to become this positive example as a young man. He starts out at 17. And he's going to go through some of the hardest things that you could in your life go through, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and he's going to emerge that sheaf where everyone bows down before him. This is the man that we're going we're to look at, Joseph. He's the teenage son of Jacob. He has no one to look up to. His brothers? No. His dad? Mm-mm. Who does he look up to? It's God. That's what makes him such a great study. And we're going to see that as we move through uh, this, these closing chapters of this wonderful book. And by the way, this is the verse, you all know it, Genesis 50, verse 20. You've seen it, you know it, but as for you, as Joseph looks at his brothers after many, many years in Egypt, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. God was sovereignly working to accomplish his his plan, his goal, not only in this man's life, but in the life of the nation of Israel here. So Joseph's life, it's just the beginning. And like I said, it's going to get worse. Falsely accused of rape, put in prison, meets a baker, tells Pharaoh the dream. He, he interprets the dream. Pharaoh makes him prime minister over Egypt. 
when the famine comes to Canaan and all the people come to Egypt because the wisdom and the knowledge of this man that has so faithful to God, they've, they've built storehouses. They have enough food to give to the surrounding nations. It's a miracle. And as food, the sheaf, and all the brothers are going to bow down before him, God is working providentially and showing. He's already shown this to this young man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of faithfulness. I love the way we, we close the book. It's in these many chapters that we have before us, but, but what a blessing this man becomes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. There are many lessons here, Lord, that, that we can learn as parents, as fathers. There are many things here for us as individuals, um, if we plan to have children, if we have children, there are lessons. But there's one main lesson here that I don't want to uh, pass over. It's your wonderful providential care and work. Lord, you took these bad things, these sinful things that these men did, and, and you're going to turn it into good. And yet your beloved Joseph is going to go through some really difficult things. And tonight, Lord, if there are any in this room that are going through some trials that are unbearable, difficult things, Lord, like Joseph, oh, Father, that they would turn their hope and their eyes to you, that they would trust you, Lord, as you sovereignly work your plan in their lives, how you will will do those, those good things and produce good things to those that wait upon you. Lord, teach us as we work our way through the rest of this book these wonderful lessons, and we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise in Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand together.